0: I say I will I'll take the ride Cause I'd rather have connections, pleasure and pain Than be
1: alone here with my pride Okay, I'll take my shot This time I'll
0: take my chance Cause that's all i have left if I don't if I
1: feminine radio where we're busy going about manifesting a new normal where you me and probably many of our friends could safely call ourselves the cognitive minority the folks fearlessly advocating for a new normal so the 99 percent can have a better quality of life advocating for peace partnership caring sharing we're about the we and the us not the i and the me which is ultimately where we think we have to lead the planet if we're going to have fairness, justice, equality, and a healthy Mother Earth to live on. Yes, we're advocating to rid ourselves of predator capitalism, exploitation, domination, and oppression and discrimination. All the ills of the world brought about by, well, organized religion, patriarchy, capitalism, to name a few, you know, as Thomas Paine said, uh, one of our forefathers, uh, he said, we have it in our power to make the world over again. And feminist Aaron Hadi Roy says, another world is not only possible, she is on her way. On a quiet day, I can hear her breathing. Yes, we can make the world a better place. Don't listen to the fear mongers and naysayers follow those of us who are blazing a trail with our pink-handled machetes and telling new stories. Well, thanks goes out tonight to Laura Kane for her music. Uh that cut you were listening to was called Choose Love. And thanks um to Roger, uh, a friend of the show for his lovely email which uh, I'm going to take a moment to read here. Uh You know, I I so appreciate my fans and uh, listeners, uh, your gas in my tank. Uh, Roger says, uh, I'm a 74-year-old retired pastor from a Christian denomination that doesn't appreciate feminism or goddess spirituality. But since my retirement, I've become attracted to both. I deeply regret the harsh judgments that my Christian that many Christians make about feminists and those who follow the path of God of spirituality. I feel very uplifted just knowing that I can cherish a feminine deity and I agree with a statement in an article about you which I discovered online. It was about men who understand that God of spirituality offers them freedom to be their authentic self. Well, that's a beautiful way of saying what I believe to be true, and I hope many men read those words. I'll close now uh, with compliments before I bore you. Uh, Please don't feel obligated to reply, but if you choose to, uh, blah, blah. uh, I don't want to reveal his uh, personal information. Uh, Anyway, he uh, works part-time for the Navy. And uh, it's it's always wonderful to uh, get these kinds of emails. So uh, thank you, Roger. I really do appreciate the feedback. And uh, it uh, makes me feel really good that we can reach people who we might ordinarily think um, are our polar opposites. Um, you know, I think the sacred feminine is uh, a bridge builder. So... Um, I uh, want to just tell listeners tonight, uh, you might uh, call my entire show uh, a What's the Buzz segment. Uh, if you're a long-time listener, you know that means I'm uh, talking the topics uh, I call the bees buzzing around in my bonnet. It's usually along the lines of uh, social or cultural or political commentary. And I have two fellas with me uh, that are going to offer some great stuff uh, to share. Uh, first up uh, is Ernie Garrett discussing the mythology of cultural media. We know our stories shape our culture, so what are today's stories uh, that are that are manifesting, and uh, how will they look hundreds of years from now? Then we have uh, Jeff Schweitzer in the second half of the show. Uh, Jeff worked with the Clinton White House, and uh, we're going to be discussing his recent Huffington Post article called, uh, Who Investigates the Investigators? And that's maybe different uh, than what we usually talk about here yes and no I guess It's a sort of a different slant in a way uh, but it's very important because uh, if investigators are not working in good faith if they have an agenda uh, first of all uh, if they're not real journalists with integrity uh, but it also means our democracy is literally at stake uh, our ability to act understand be good citizens all of that is impacted and um, I don't know about you but don't you get the feeling that's just what some people want to do But before we uh, start those chats, I want to remind you, uh, our two last Joseph Campbell roundtables for this year are happening. Uh, The first one is uh, next Saturday, well, this Saturday, actually, November 7th, uh, the Joseph Campbell roundtable in Venice. Our speaker is Jillian Cameron, who's giving a talk and slideshow called Transgender Spirituality, Redeeming a Maligned Wisdom. Then the following Saturday, November 14th, Charlotte Cressy will be at the The Goddess Temple of Orange County, giving a talk uh, called Embodied Love of Veganism as a New Paradigm of Relationship and Charlotte will be on the show uh, next week, uh, November 11th, discussing her topic, in case you're not within driving distance of the temple and you want to hear what she has to say, because I do think maybe she's creating a new mythology. And um, Jillian Cameron was on the show with me, uh, I think in September, uh, talking about uh, transgender spirituality. So you can go back in the archives and listen to that. If uh, Again, if you're not within driving distance of Venice, California uh but want to hear um you know what you know what the content of that uh, talk will be about so uh we're about ready now to uh, turn our attention to Ernie and um let me uh, tell you a little bit about uh, Ernie Garrett uh, before uh, we start our chat about mythology of uh, cultural media. Um, Ernie's from New Jersey. He grew up writing fan fiction online. Uh, he fell obsessively in love with movies and storytelling. Through unique circumstances, he ended up working double time as an analyst in L.A. for a major agency, helping them overcome a backlog after the 2007 writer strike, and in the process developed his own system and ideas for understanding stories and movies that are unique and could change the way people discuss the topic, and he's on a mission to share them with people. Um, during the summer, uh, this summer, a theory. Uh, let's see. He says this summer, a theory on my YouTube channel started an international debate about special effects and beauty versus reality in movies that got featured in at least three languages and five countries and received over a million views. Not too shabby. That's pretty impressive, uh, Ernie.
2: Thank you. <laughs> How are you doing? <laughs>
1: I'm good. I'm good. Thank you so much uh, for being on the show. And, um, you know, when I first, uh, I first learned about you uh, through a Facebook post and people were uh, talking about the wonderful talk you gave on this topic and uh, I was hoping you were local to, um, you know, have you at one of our local Joseph Campbell roundtables. But, you know what, this turned out even better because now uh, all my listeners across the globe are going to be able to hear uh, hear about you and what you have to say.
2: Yeah, well, I I spent quite a few years living in L.A. I'm on the other coast now, but, uh, you know, we can work it out with the time zones and things. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, if you ever make it back here, let me know, and uh, we'll, we'll most definitely have you at one of our uh, our local Joseph Campbell roundtables. You know, because this is such uh, such an important topic, and um, I don't know. I, I I kind of figure I uh, am pretty similar to a lot of people. You know, we hear the word mythology, and I think we think, oh God, that Greek mythology. I had to, you know, I I had to learn in grade school or something, yeah, and yeah. maybe you know you know we. I don't think much more about it than that, but, you know, people like Joseph Campbell taught us that mythology shapes our culture, and yep. I know as a feminist, you know, I, I, I've come to learn that, you know, if your mythology uh, is about a male god, then you end up with, um, you know, the Abrahamic religions and uh, men sort of still ruling the world and patriarchy. Um, so, you you know, our stories are more important than maybe most people realize. Uh, would you Would you agree and elaborate?
2: <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, we start understanding things when we're young by looking at what's going on around us as children. And that is what stories are. We're just being told about things that have happened. And, you know, if you look at any kid when they're in class, the one thing that they all do when they get bored is start to mess with their desk, look at each other, look out the window. They're all trying to observe things that are going on. Kids want to learn. You know, we have an urge to learn, but we don't have the natural urge to learn from books, like you said about Greek mythology. We want to see things that people are doing, and we want to see the results of people's actions, and that's how we draw our lessons. So our mythology relates to that, just like any stories we tell, in that those show people's actions and the results of those actions, and that becomes part of the concrete, you might say, at the bottom of our worldview. And we use that reasoning as we grow up, we build upon it, And it becomes the way we make all of our decisions. So, yeah, mythology is in the core of who we are. And if we recognize that and start to realize how we can educate kids with those ideas, we can see how they influence us, and we can probably educate kids better, too.
1: Well, um, you know, and I think boys and girls hear different stories that affect how they end up living their lives. I mean, um, as a a young girl growing up in the South, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I heard stuff like, oh, you know, don't be too loud, don't be too smart, you'll never get a husband, uh, Mm -hmm. you need to act like you like sports even if you don't, you know, all of these (laughs) sorts of things. And that's, I mean, that's sort of our mythology too, isn't it?
2: Yeah, we have gender roles in society, and those roles shape the way people develop, even when people have different sets of abilities. Like, I have friends who, you know, amaze me with how smart they are, you know, and some of them are men, some of them are women, but they go into different things based on what they're told they should do. So, a lot of times people will think, oh, women aren't inclined to do math. Well, you don't necessarily, if you don't tell them to do it, you know, even brilliant women won't necessarily look into that. They'll look into other things to use their talents at doing. Mm So, you know, we learn, we start out by listening to adults, everybody, no matter how smart you are as a kid, you know, you're programmed to start learning from your parents because they survived long enough to have you, so they must have something figured out.
1: Right. Right. You know, well, and do you so, think, you know, like some of the messages or stories that boys get, you know, oh, they're supposed to like football and sports and all of that, mm-hmm. but they're not supposed to like, you know, if but if they go into the theater, people are going to get the wrong idea about them, you know, those kinds of mm-hmm. things. I mean, is that typical of maybe the kinds of stories that, uh, you know, that boys hear and, you know, maybe shape boys' lives, or maybe you have better examples?
2: Well, I think that's definitely true. To some extent, of course, people are different. Men and women are different physically. But it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy sometimes. And when we tell people that, you know, if you're a man, you're not supposed to feel emotions. You know, you you have to be strong. That's the way you have to judge yourself. People who maybe have different sets of talents, people who may be more uh, shy or more academically inclined, start to feel like they should be embarrassed by that. And they should be out there trying to fight other people or being tough and... You know hiding their abilities and that's a detrimental part of society too so it happens both ways you know you can't tell mm-hmm. women not to use their minds, just like you shouldn't tell men that they're not cool if they're not out playing sports if they like to look at uh, uh, they like to learn ideas and study mathematics whatever it is they're interested in Mhm,
1: mm-hmm. well you know I was uh, you know before we went on the air uh, we, we chatted you know real briefly and uh, mm-hmm. you know we I was I, I was starting to say to you, well, I wonder if there's any if there are any stories that can account for what we're seeing in the political arena right now, and you know Ernie, I might have answered my own question and i I, I want to share my thought with you and, and see if you uh you know what you think you know the, uh-huh. what's what's go what's, especially what's going on in the Republican Party with you know trump and um I, you know i I think that is the fruit of the Fox news channel mythology. You know the disinformation, the lies, the hate mongering. You know the immigrants are evil stories, the liberals are evil stories, the you know liberal media stories. You know all of that stuff. I wonder if if you know uh, you know that is a, um, a you know a, a new mythology that uh, is afoot because I mean. 10 or 15 years ago we didn't see this kinds of stuff but we didn't have a Fox News channel uh, mm-hmm. you know um reaching the the amount of people that they reach with the with the kind of message or story that they uh you know that they put out I mean do you do you think there's any relevance to that
2: Yes and I think that part of it is the change that we've had in the media because even, you know, like you said, 10, 15 years ago, we did not have the amount of media thrown at us every day that we have now. We can get news channels uh, on TV, they're 24-hour news, combined with news websites, news feeds on Facebook, news coming to you, and email everywhere. And that competition amongst the media sources starts to create a sort of natural selection where the things that get the most attention are the things that – survive and so we get this process where it doesn't necessarily become about whatever it is that the ideal is where we're supposed to tell the truth you know, you know no matter what your political persuasion is it becomes about what gets ratings or what gets clicks and so you start to see journalism through this process become more about what's going to be interesting and stimulating to people and less about what journalism was you know, in theory supposed to be, I went to journalism school, where you inform people about the important things that are going on. So the people who take that ideal are actually naturally selected out because they're going to be outperformed by the people who purely go for ratings. So we end up getting things like these political debates where the moderators are mostly interested in making the debate entertaining. So we have much more emphasis on conflict than we do on substance, which is what we all at least in theory, should be interested in. And a lot of times the candidates, the smart candidates, who, you know, whether they like it or not, are going to have to play the same game, end up focusing on what people find interesting. So the candidates who say the most controversial things, even if they're not necessarily substantive things, are the ones who get the most coverage. People see their names the most. And one of our instincts is to think that if somebody is prominent in our minds, that means they have a certain quality and that they should necessarily be a leader or somebody who we look at. So the mere act of getting in the news and saying controversial things and getting ratings and appearing in the news stories helps somebody's political stature. So you can have somebody who may or may not know a lot about politics. I don't want to you know, pontificate about it. But as long as they are trained in how to relate to the media and how to be entertaining, they're going to succeed in terms of, Leading the votes at least for now, you know maybe over time that'll change, but I think that's what's going on
1: so i I mean, what does that say about the you know the the public out there that they're so easily i guess you know led by their nose, you know that they're that they're valuing such shallow um, uh, you know, performance. I mean, it's so, unless, and you know, I, I don't know. I, I'm afraid to buy into the idea that okay, they're they're just all uh, watching it. The same way I'm watching it because it's a circus act. But I think some of them, some of them don't think it's a circus act. I mean, I think some of them are taking this all seriously and you know believe these guys are qualified, believe these guys have their best interest at heart. And I, I don't know. I, I guess I'm just wondering what has happened to, um, you know, citizens, Americans' ability to critically think and um, discern what they should really be concerned about and you know not fall prey to this reality TV which is what it seems uh to actually be uh, you know another version of reality television
2: well it it's 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 very difficult because the way the po- political system at least as far as i know is set up is that politicians don't really benefit from telling you what they really think because if you tell somebody what you really think and you're wrong then you're going to lose an election to somebody who never gave you an answer in the first place because that person might be right, but nobody knows, but you've been proven to be wrong. So we have that same natural selection process whereby the politicians who care the most about the issues, whoever they may be, will disappear because they're always going to lose out to the person who won't answer the question or who tries to give an appearance that they're answering the question, but instead is just kind of vague. So as the public, we probably focus on the entertaining things because it's difficult for us to find real answers by design. So maybe that's more a result of a flaw in our political system. I don't want to say that I know how to fix it or anything like that, but just from the way people act and that little aspect of I think we can get a little clue about some of that difficulty. And there's the idea of rational ignorance where we each have different things we have to deal with in our lives and we can only devote so much time to other things so you know it to understand things like uh, economics or foreign policy or what's going on in the world we'd have to take time out of doing our jobs and helping our families and those important things and it's just a situation where we get diminishing returns and we only have a certain amount of time to pay attention And those issues are purposefully concealed in some ways by the same dynamics in the political system. So we can't necessarily get the knowledge that we need in the time we have available. So we end up using these sort of shortcuts, which is one of the reasons why I think there are two political parties, just so that we get a baseline idea of where people stand. And we rely on those to kind of make decisions, and that kind of makes people pray to not necessarily – being able to pay so much attention. So you see people get interviewed and not know which candidate stands for what and things like that. But it's it's a difficult situation. I'm not sure how we could fix it in any kind of short-term solution. Right,
1: right. Well, now, you said you were a journalism student, and uh, so maybe you know this answer. Um, when did all of this shift, you know, in, in the media? And, you know, and I don't want to talk about the media all night. This will be my last media question. I want to, you know, get into some of this other stuff. But I think, you, you know, you may be able to answer this question. When did things shift to you know, news started to become entertainment rather than there being this firewall between what was real news, and you know, and and basically there not being any truth in advertising anymore, or there or there not being you know news outlets are not obligated to to say unbiased truth like they I think they had to do in the days of Walter Cronkite.
2: I, maybe you know, if I had to hazard a guess, it would probably be. The emergence of cable news, perhaps. Because when cable television came along, you couldn't survive as much in terms of getting ratings by being idealistic. Before, you had maybe, you know, a small handful of channels where somebody could focus more on what it is that people needed to know. And maybe when cable news showed up, that kind of created the situation where competition for ratings kind of overtook anything else, and then you had to either go for what people wanted to see in the short term, you know, our uh, very quick instincts, rather than ones that may be more valuable but would take longer for people to realize and react to. So probably the emergence of cable television might have supercharged that, and then the emergence of the Internet on top of that probably just pushed it to the level it's at right now.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I wonder what historians are gonna say, you know, uh, you know, fifty years from now when they look back and they see you know how things have just so deteriorated. You know, I—I I mean, I—I I put, I lay so much of the blame on Fox News's doorstep, but I'm sure they're not the only culprits. But uh, you know, it, uh, I, I just don't recall there being the kind of hate and fear mongering uh, when there wasn't a platform perpetuating it. You know, like Fox seems to do. But um, it, it'll be interesting. You know, I, I think um, it, because you know, here we are tonight talking about how our stories shape our culture. And you know what it feels like to me, you know the stories that come out of out of the television, you know whether they're news or whether they're a drama or you know a comedy show um I mean like we were talking about Star Trek before you know um mm-hmm. they they make us they make us think you know and and I think for those of us who or maybe tend to be sheeple or maybe don't mm-hmm. have time to you know do the critical thinking um you know it's it's like the people who go to church to kind of be told uh you know what they ought to be doing you know they want to sort of be led um and i and to a certain extent i think our um our tv mythology our film mythology um you know that all you know that does shape our culture um i i mean like for instance i think when hollywood got very um Um, you know, gay friendly, for instance, Um, Uh you know, they, you know, they might've been real instrumental in helping the country move in that direction too. I mean, um, would you say, I mean, what do you think?
2: Uh, Probably, you know, it's, it's very interesting to me how social trends happen. I try to spend a lot of time understanding that. And it might be that uh, as people have political debates about things, some things are easier to win a debate over than others, and the things that you can't really defend, perhaps are the things that eventually lose out in the public interest, so maybe that's what it is. you know, maybe people are having debates about uh, legalization of marijuana or gay marriage, and one side simply wins the argument more often, and then maybe it spreads that way but ultimately, I don't think that's going to harm people because those are matters of you know personal freedom If somebody wants to marry someone that doesn't hurt you know you or me and somebody wants to do something in the privacy of their own home. It doesn't hurt people. So uh, I think that it's just a matter of potentially people arguing about things. And one thing that's interesting about movies is that you see politics a lot on TV, but you don't see it as much in movies. And in a lot of cases, it's considered kind of a taboo thing. When you make a political movie, it's hard because you necessarily lose just automatically – Over 50% of your audience Because half of them are going to be Democrats Half of them are going to be Republicans And children aren't going to understand A lot of political topics And they're the most profitable demographic That you can get in movies But on top of that Movies have to be And mythologies too Have to be believable by people And that doesn't mean they have to match reality But there has to be a consistent logic to them And very often in our political points of view we don't necessarily match them always to reality we have certain things that we believe in that we can back up some things that we kind of guess on or feel our way through and if you do that in a movie the audience will disconnect a lot of the time if it doesn't form a consistent reality so it's really hard to put a certain political ideology into a movie and have people react to it. it's a really difficult challenge so you don't see politics as much in movies if somebody does it well it'll probably be impactful but it's so hard to do well that it's probably more likely uh, to affect people when it's attached to things that are already happening in the real world. So there's some believable basis there already.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, that makes sense. I mean, I I, I was trying to think of political movies, and uh, I I can't remember the title, but I know that one. Uh, I I you know. Uh, Oh it 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 was it was about uh you know the wag the dog's tail or something like that it it
2: uh There was a movie called Wag the Dog.
1: Maybe that was it Wag the Dog and it was about how um uh you know we were we were seeing Oh, I can't even remember how to explain it well enough. But but that was a political movie, and I think about stuff like The Manchurian Candidate. Or, mm-hmm. uh, But then those are, you know, maybe those are more intrigue than they are uh, political yeah. movies, you know. Yeah, but, they're, they're um,
2: focused more on things happening behind the scenes rather than a particular, having a particular political slant to them, I think. I think you could have a Manchurian Candidate movie, you know, no matter whether the president is a Democrat or Republican or anything else. Because people like yeah. to believe those kinds of things you know you have conspiracy theories can definitely be fun they can be stimulating and that's kind of the province of movies is what's stimulating and fun in a lot of ways
1: yeah i was thinking about oliver stones jfk too mm-hmm. um well you know well 50 shades of gray and twilight um you know mm-hmm. uh, we were going to talk about how uh women and men react differently uh to certain genres um mm-hmm. did did you want to get into that a little bit
2: Sure, sure. I'd like to talk about that. I mean, there's a lot of... uh, People, of course, are all individuals. You know, you can't necessarily predict what somebody's going to like just because they happen to be a man or a woman. But because we have different gender roles that we're taught in society, that can play a part and kind of create some trends in what men like and what women like. So in a lot of cases, with something like Fifty Shades of Grey, you have have a romantic fantasy, you know, where uh, the woman comes in and she finds a man who is very handsome and has you know, all kinds of status and power. And then that becomes part of their romantic relationship and what they, you know, the, the games they play romantically. And men who take on that gender role aren't necessarily going to be attracted to that. They are emotionally dead to that. You know, they. it depends how they are attracted to the romantic person in the movie. And when a movie, this is the kind of shortcut you can use. When a movie is targeted at men, the male character will usually be boring. It's the female character that will be odd or interesting. Whereas if the movie's targeted at women, the female main character will be very plain, whereas the man will be the one who's really interesting because you're supposed to take on the same romantic interest in the character, the love interest character, that the main character in the movie does. So with Fifty Shades of Grey, you have this phenomenon where women, not all women, of course, but a lot of women, really like it, and it's a very stimulating fantasy to them. I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but most men don't. So you'll see people say, I don't understand why that movie's so successful, that movie's terrible. But, yes, it's bad to you if you don't get the romantic fantasy of it, because all you see is dialogue that may not be good, scenarios that may not be believable. But n- bad dialogue and unbelievable scenarios don't necessarily make for a bad movie. There's other things that can make a movie good, too. These things kind of layer together. So you'll see people complain about Fifty Shades of Grey. Very often it'll be men, while people on the other side won't necessarily defend it because they don't feel like arguing, but they'll just quietly buy a ticket, and the movie will gross a ton of money. And that, to Mm -hmm. me, is an interesting clue into how our minds work, where people are stimulated by different things, but we don't necessarily realize it, and we project, I think they call it the typical mind fallacy, they project their set of emotions onto everyone else, and it creates a sort of confusion between us, which causes a lot of disagreements and arguments. But I think if people start to broaden their perspectives a little bit, or we all broaden our perspectives a little bit, we can kind of relate better, and that kind of gives us a good clue to how that works, I think. Twilight's all right, well, the same let's- way.
1: Well, well, all right. So let's look at, say, for instance, let, I mean, I can see where Fifty Shades of Grey and Twilight might be more a woman's movie, especially mm-hmm. maybe Fifty Shades of Grey, because I can see where some men might not want to go see it, because how could they possibly feel anything but... Um, uh, They're for different age groups,
2: by the way, yeah. Fifty uh, Shades well, of Grey is definitely age. for an older demographic than Twilight.
1: Well, yes, 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 absolutely. Yeah. And I'm and I'm thinking, you know, do men want to go see a movie where they will never, uh they can never be that man? You know, they'll never be that rich. They'll never be that powerful. They just sort of come That's out and maybe uh, emasculated. You know, That's and, and point, think, oh, yeah. I'll, I'll I'll never get a woman if this is what women want. You know, yeah. <laughs>
2: um,
1: You'll, Twilight. I'll tell only... you
2: something. As a man, you know, you're never supposed to say those things. You know, you're always supposed to be stoic or strong, but the world that movies present to you and the way it affects your ego has a huge effect on how, you, how much you like the movie. So I, I made a video about this. I call it Kaufman's Folly, where if a movie shows you a world where everything is better than your own world, you're going to have a revulsion to it, a, revulsion, a reaction of revulsion to the movie, where you can either accept it and feel bad about yourself, have it kind of mess with your head a little bit. You can reject it and get angry. Or you can kind of not take the movie seriously where you won't enjoy it as much. So, yeah, what you said is absolutely true. If I'm a guy watching Fifty Shades of Grey and I see a, a handsome billionaire who does all these things that I can never have, I can never necessarily do in reality, you know, even if I might consider myself handsome, I don't have a billion dollars. If I had a billion dollars, you know, in a lot of cases I might be a, uh, somebody who's not so handsome and clever. You can't have all those things at the same time. So that unrealistic reality kind of makes people reject things. But, but yeah, go ahead, go ahead with what you're saying.
1: Um well and, and so I I'm looking at so so then Twilight um mm-hmm. I can see where it, you know it 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 would appeal to women because of the love story aspect although mm-hmm. maybe they've put some action and some fight scenes in it and the vampire theme for the men. I mean there is something mm-hmm. there for the guys too. But would you say Twilight is definitely more for for women than than guys?
2: Yeah, I would definitely say that. And I haven't seen all of Twilight. I've seen a little bit of it. And when I saw it, I just laughed because that movie is so like I said it can be che- the writing the dialogue can be cheesy, but that movie is so well made as a fantasy for what I think appeals to young girls that it's crazy, and you know people people think um that you know a romantic fantasy is only about sex, you know, and like you go to certain channels at night and then you see sex on t v and that's what it's about. People react to different things, you know movies that are made just to stimulate you can be romantic movies. You can have a movie like Twilight that is made to stimulate you in the same way that uh, you know a movie that just has sex would be there to stimulate you, but it stimulates your romantic instincts rather than your sexual ones. And that's what I think mm-hmm. happens in Twilight. And Twilight is so good in the way it's set up to stimulate people in that way, that even if the dialogue is cheesy, I think that the action scenes in them probably function – to establish the male characters as being especially strong and virile men to make them more attractive to the Ah. viewers, probably more so than men. Because, you know, these scenes can do different things. It depends on the way you set them up. Because I know in the beginning of Twilight, one of the ways that Bella discovers that Edward is a vampire, that he's not a normal person, is that I think he saves her from being hit by a car. I'm not specifically sure. But I know there's a scene where something's about to hit her. He stops it, you know, with... I think super speed or strength. And he's standing there holding it back with his arm, looking in her eyes. And from one perspective, that might be an action scene where your adrenaline is stimulated by the risk. That's kind of the way action scenes work. It's about taking a risk. But I think the power of that scene is that it shows that he's a superpowered protector. And that mm-hmm. male role of being able to protect the female, uh, in a lot of cases, is very, very attractive. And I think the fact that he does it. And then looks into her eyes, kind of makes it really clear that that's the way that scene functions. And I think a lot of the other movies, a lot of the other things in the movie happen the same way.
1: Well, and there's and there's that old story creeping up again. You know, the sort of the old-fashioned story that, uh, you know, the mythology that women are fed—that you need a man to take care of you too. You know. Yes, yeah,
0: yeah, um, yeah. Well,
1: and 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 I'm sure Edward got that role strictly. I, I mean, as soon as I saw his eyes. They uh, you know he had the role. It didn't matter if he could utter a word. I think he got it based on his eyes but um hmm. but let's you know let's sort of break down a different type movie, like for instance, the 007 movies the james bond hmm. the James Bond movies. How are those different? How are those appealing to either the ma- men or women?
2: Sure, um, like I said, I think that action movies work by stimulating the adrenaline through risk. Whereas when you look at scary movies, they stimulate the adrenaline through threats, which is why when you look at an action movie like with Tom Cruise, he's always taking crazy risks. He's jumping off the building to catch the helicopter that's trying to pull off, and he's doing all these things to do what's right. And when you look at something like Jason Voorhees from Friday the 13th, he's always threatening. And in fact, he threatens more than he actually does anything, because the famous... The uh, image of Jason is not him stabbing somebody. It's him staring at you from far away. The thing people (laughs) remember about Jason is that little, you know, that sound they make when Jason's about to get you. Yeah, yeah, it's more famous than any individual kill he made. And usually in the horror movies, the killing scene, I think when you do it really well, if you look at somebody like Wes Craven, who I think died recently, unfortunately, when you do it really well and you look at a Wes Craven movie, the point of the terrible act, uh, scene where the person is killed, in this case, is to establish the threat for later. So that the person who we like most, the heroine in the movie, like in Nightmare on Elm Street, Nancy, who's a really likable person, who you really don't want to die, the whole point of seeing other people die, besides you know the little bits of adrenaline you get, is so that when he goes after Nancy, you feel the most amount of threat, and that gets your adrenaline going the most. Whereas in an action scene, the whole point of it is to show how strong and alpha male the man is by showing that he will take any risk necessary to do what's right. That's how strong he is, and that's how confident he is that he will jump out of a building to land on, you know, a, a helicopter that's about to take off, catch it with one hand, keep his, you know, his machine gun in his other hand, and get people because he's so strong and he's so trained that he does that, and it makes him look like a superhero because he's super capable and he's super confident and that becomes a sort of fantasy for men we project ourselves into it um if it's mm-hmm. smart then the guy will have some weaknesses too so it doesn't become like a situation where the thing's better than us and makes us feel bad and mm-hmm. that is kind of what gets us going about that that shows the difference but it shows that in that way we get different emotional things out of moments that in a lot of cases look similar, and action movies play a different role in the way they stimulate us like that, if that makes sense.
1: Well, and I remember seeing a documentary, too, about these slasher-type movies, and they were Uh talking about um, it's always the kids who were caught having sex. You know they're going to die because Mm -hmm. that's sending the message that sex is a bad thing and this is your punishment. Is is, (laughs) is there any, any truth to that?
2: Yes, absolutely. Like we talked about before, the way we learn about things I think most naturally is by looking at things people do and seeing what it causes to have, what it causes to happen to them. So when we watch those movies, the people who get killed by the, by Jason or Freddie or whoever, they generally, I think when it's done real well, will be somebody who did something that you shouldn't do so that people don't feel like it's a real moment where they're really depressed. It's supposed to have some sort of relief to it. So the movie ultimately feels good to you. And that's why you'll see kids out skinny dipping in Crystal Lake, and then they're the mm-hmm. ones who you'll see Jason threatening. And you'll mm-hmm. see people, you know, staying up, uh, do, popping pills to stay up when they shouldn't be messing around with drugs, and that makes Freddie come after them. So that gives that stimulates our moral sense and that we see people doing things that we don't want them, we don't think people should do, and that causes them to become a victim. And you see how things kind of layer together because – you get that effect in those scenes, and then that also, like we said, builds up the threat. It shows you how dangerous Freddy and Jason are so that when Nancy, who never does anything wrong, is home alone and all of a sudden Freddy comes for her, we're like, no, don't get her. She, she didn't do anything wrong. Leave her alone. And that gets us going, too. But, yeah, it's just like you said. You know, that's part of how stories shape us and who we are. And when they're done really well, they, along the way, have those lessons that either teach us something if we're really young and we're still learning these things, or confirm what we already know if we're older, and both of those things feel good for us
1: okay um we'll we'll talk a little bit about the uh, the ancient myths, like you were like unicorns from rhinoceri, for instance
2: yeah yeah how 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 the uh myth form at least what I think, yeah, um when we go forward with myths, I think that we are in a situation where we don't have the same perspective on the past that we have on our own situation. And it creates a sort of uh, nostalgia effect where we look back at things and we think, oh, you know, there was a simpler time. That was a simpler time where we had better entertainment and so on. But it's not necessarily the case because when we look back, we don't see all the boring parts of what life was like at a certain time, you know. We'll think, oh, you know, in the Middle Ages everybody was a knight and they were all... Fighting, you know, all these wars and everything was really interesting. But most people were farmers and peasants, you know. You just don't hear about that because it wasn't interesting. Similarly, in our lives now, we have a lot of mundane things that we don't notice. And our stories, the things that happen to us, aren't as interesting. But what happens is there are some interesting things that happen, and we tell other people about them. And as those stories are retold, we naturally edit them a little bit and over time they become more and more interesting, and they reflect reality a little bit less. And that's how I think myths are formed. So you take someone like Marco Polo, who traveled all around the world, and he, I believe he's credited with spreading the idea of the unicorn, but when people look at his descriptions, you can see that it seemed quite clearly, based on where he was in the world and what he was saying, that he was actually talking about a rhinoceros. And people didn't know what a rhinoceros was, so they described it as being like a horse. And they kind of added little details about it to make it more interesting, like how unicorns have magic powers and their horns have special properties and those kinds of things. And you can see the same thing with um, something like St. George, who's credited with killing a dragon. And St. George, if you look at the way that myth functioned, it's really obvious that St. George killed a crocodile. You can look at the paintings from around that time, and you see that the, cro- the dragon, so to speak, is about the size of a crocodile, has four legs, doesn't even have wings in a lot of cases, and is jumping up, reaching up for the horse, and St. George is stabbing down at it with his uh, lance or his sword, whatever he has in his hand. And if you look at the region where it happened, where he went, I think it was in North Africa, and that region is known to have lots of crocodiles. And mm-hmm. the crocodile, the dragon in question Lived in a lake <laughs> near the town and would terrorize the people who would try to leave the town and go by that area. And, you know, as far as I know, most dragons tend to live in caves. They tend to fly, those kinds of things. And that's where I think the myth went eventually as it was exaggerated. Yeah. But, yeah, you know, you think dragons he would be, don't he live in
1: well, he would be mm-hmm. aiming up, too, with the sword. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, you know, um, there was one movie not that, that came out not that long ago. I don't know if many people saw it. I don't think it got really good ratings. It was with Antonio Banderas called The 13th mm-hmm. Warrior. And uh-huh. when I got out of the movie, I told my husband, I said, you know what? That movie shows you perfectly how myths are created. Because mm-hmm. these people who lived in the village thought – um, a fire-breathing dragon lived up at the top of the hill, and what uh-huh. it turned out was what they were actually seeing was when um, when these warriors would come from the top of the hill at night with their torches, and they oh. would um, you know take this uh, you know this sort of this circuitous route uh, mm-hmm. down the hill you know with these curves that would go back and forth it, you mm-hmm. know it was it was really humans carrying torches but they saw it from afar. And they imagined yeah. that it was a fire-breathing dragon, and you could you could imagine that happening at a time mm-hmm. when people, you know, people were simple, and um, yeah. you know that that that, uh, that could have easily, uh, you know, become the myth. But you know, it had yep, no yep. had no basis in fact. Well, um, yep. tell me a little bit about um, femininity, the femininity in movies, how uh, it could be emphasized and, and misunderstood. I think my listeners would probably be interested in that.
2: Sure. Um, well, we've talked a little bit about the different roles. I think that men and women play in movies and different ways people react to it. But I think a lot of that depends on how the movies are made to and who makes the decisions. Because I think that we tend to view things as an individual in terms of what they mean to us. Like, for example, if you showed me a candy bar, I would think about eating it. Or if I wasn't hungry, I'd think about where I could keep it until later if you were going to give it to me. But if you show that candy bar to somebody else, they might think about getting it away from themselves because they're on a diet. They might think about it making them sick if they're allergic to it. They might work for a candy bar company, and they might think about it making them money, and they might think about the design of the candy bar you know, or where they're going to get it, where it's going to be placed in the supermarket. There's all kinds of associated thoughts you can have. But it's all about what it means to us. And if you look at movies, depending on who makes the movie and how, if they put their instincts into it, which most good filmmakers and storytellers do that's part of artists using your instincts and your feelings you will put the different characters in the movie in terms of what they mean to you so if a man makes a movie it doesn't necessarily mean you're a bad person or anything like that but if you put a female character in the movie you'll usually think about that in terms of what women mean to you like if i'm a man i might not even realizing it think about putting in women as love interests putting in women as someone to be attracted to, someone to be pursued, as someone who is a friend, and so on. But I won't necessarily put a female character in there as someone who you identify with or whose life struggle you share because it's something that's very different from my life experience. And if I realize that I might do it, but our instincts, this is something that's very interesting to me, our instincts don't talk. They just give us the feeling. So if we're not aware of what they're doing, they'll do their job and they'll quietly influence our actions. So to show the different roles that women can have besides just what they might mean to to me as a man, of course, but like I said, people are different. Um, different men might view things differently. They might be more and less equal-minded in that. But to do it, I think we'd want to see people who – viewed those things differently you might want to have more women making uh, decisions in, in Hollywood to get those things so you can see more female characters who represent things that women value and what femininity means to them you know you don't see a lot of movies about bearing children for example but one of the most powerful experiences you can have is bearing children you know I I've had we had two people added to our family in the last year and it was wonderful I didn't experience it personally but it gave me a hint of what that must of what that's like So that's probably a part of, you know, something that I think we need to do, which is get more people of different backgrounds, including women, making decisions so we can see those things, which are obviously emotionally powerful things, reflected more in movies, and particularly the roles that uh, women uniquely have in society and seeing those, too, because they definitely make for more profitable movies.
1: So why do why would you say um all the movies are geared toward uh males it seems like 20 to 35 I mean why are there not more to, uh you know tomb raider movies or uh Xena, uh you know you know Xena's episodes um you know why you know is it is it simply because you know Hollywood is still Um, you know, maybe behind the times and thinks the public doesn't see women in that way, uh, you you know, uh, to, to, I don't know, you know, to garner garner enough uh, sales, you know, at at the box office? That's a good
2: question. I think that probably is a part of it. I know that young men are supposed to have the most uh, disposable income because they're apparently, you know, based on our traditional gender roles, the most careerist people who are most focused on making money and they don't have a family yet, so they have all this extra money. So they want to get that 18- to 34-year-old male demographic because they have all that money to give away. It's just like how, like I said, children are such a profitable demographic because they don't have any expenses for their money. They're either going to spend on candy or movies and toys. So if you're selling them movies and toys, you can make a lot of extra money that way. And kids are also doubly valuable because if they're too young to drive, they'll bring their parents. So a lot of these decisions, when you look at the raw numbers of making money, depend on who simply is more likely to spend the money at the movies. So I think they target men for that reason because they have that disposable income. And I think that part of it might also be that there's a lot of men – in positions of power. There's women in positions of power, too, but maybe with our traditional gender roles, we encourage men to be hardcore ambitious and to get that spot in the boardroom and to be the person making the decisions. So you end up seeing guys running studios and being the ones who make those decisions. And because the instincts don't talk to us, their, their vision of what will work, what appeals to them emotionally, isn't something that views a woman as somebody to identify with. It views women, like I said, as someone to pursue or have a romantic interest in or have other roles in the movie. So you get this sort of situation where you don't have enough roles for people who have diverse backgrounds like women or even people of different ethnic backgrounds. And it's it's a bit unfortunate. But if you can change the situation and see more people of different backgrounds in those decision-making positions, I think you would see more diverse movies. I don't think it would affect profits that much.
1: Okay, well, um, well, Ernie, we're we're about out of time here. I see uh, my second guest uh, has called in, and he's mm-hmm. uh, uh, he's he's been waiting a couple minutes. But uh, I want to give you an opportunity uh, before we say good night. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I know there were, we sort of maybe went a little far afield of uh, of our topic, <laughs> mythology, uh, uh, you know, of cultural media. But was there mm-hmm. anything you wanted to leave listeners with that maybe I didn't ask you that you felt was important about the topic?
2: Uh, I think I just might want to say that, like I said, instincts dictate so much of what we do, and they don't tell us about that. You know, I'm working on a book, and it, uh, if you know, when if I ever eventually finish it, in addition to my YouTube channel, it, a lot of it'll talk about a lot of these things. But YouTube and the change that we're seeing now is that people are able to try out different methods of appealing to people instead of having to have permission from somebody, because those permission decisions depend on instincts that usually are based on practical results and seeing things that already exist in the world. That's the way instincts um, are triggered. And the instinct isn't designed to be flexible. It's designed to be fast. So without that gatekeeper there to make the decision instinctively and stop you from trying out new things, we're going to see a lot more creativity. And we're going to see people trying out things that don't necessarily relate to what's already invented. So YouTube is great. (laughs) And this new media situation that we have, like being able to talk to you on the show, is really great, too, and I'm happy to be here. So I guess that's all I would add.
1: Okay, well, well, Ernie, it's been fun uh, chatting with you tonight. Uh, you know, it, I, I could go on and on. I mean, I'd love to just dissect a bunch of movies with you. Maybe we could mm. uh, do that uh, some other time if you uh, uh, if you have time. Uh, Should but, I mention um, my channel,
2: my YouTube channel? Yes,
1: I was, I was, I was just about to say it, but you go ahead and do it. Go
0: ahead.
2: Sure. It's uh, it's YouTube.com/storybrain. Uh, like I said, I've been putting some time on a book and other things. I'm going to be putting up new stuff there. And uh, I'm on on Twitter at StoryBrain1, and I'm also on Facebook at EverythingStoryChannel, all is one word. So if people are interested in these ideas, they're welcome to stop by and drop me a line and see the stuff I've got up there.
1: Okay, sounds good. And, uh, you know, maybe in a few months if you're up to it, um, you know, maybe I can have you on and we will just dissect some movies.
2: That would be great. I'd love to do that.
1: Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much, Ernie. It's been great, and uh, Mm -hmm. I, I appreciate your time tonight.
2: And thank you too. It's great talking to you.
1: Okay, bye-bye. All right. Well, bye. um we we are crossing the threshold into the second half of the show and uh, as I told you my dear listeners uh, at the at the top of the hour uh, our second guest tonight is uh, dr. Jeff Schweitzer and he's a former White House uh, science advisor from the Clinton administration he's also a regular contributor to and featured blogger on The Huffington Post he's the author of five books including his best-selling one titled beyond cosmic dice uh, moral life uh, and a Random World, and I want to say hello and welcome, Jeff.
0: How are you? I'm glad hello. to be with you.
1: Well, thank you so much for being on the show tonight. Um, I, I, I was just thrilled when uh, you know when you said you'd come on because I loved your article, uh, you know, in the Huffington Post uh, called uh, "Who Will Investigate uh, the Investigators." And you know, I don't know if you happened to uh, tune into you know the opening uh, of the show when I first came on the air and told listeners that you were going to be with me, but um, you know, I was. Uh, Talking about uh how important it is uh, that investigators uh, work in good faith, and you know we have a problem if they have an agenda, and maybe they aren't real journalists with integrity I mean it could cost us our democracy uh it prevents uh you know good citizens from having the information they need to make good decisions and um sometimes I think that's really the goal of some people out there um, Would you agree or um do you think it's it's just, um, uh, you know, personal self-interest uh, as opposed to a strategy or a, or a plot?
0: Well, those, those aren't mutually exclusive. I think it's both. Definitely it's driven by a political agenda. And the interesting thing about Benghazi, which is one of the reasons why I wrote about it, is because it is a manufactured scandal. It's a fabrication and a creation of right-wing media, and it's not tethered to any reality or truth. And it's really fueled by this an outrage born of ignorance and and what I call an ugly selective memory and so what it does benghazi exemplifies what's wrong with conservative thought these days it's it It really is a um a denigration of what should be our political dialogue.
1: Right. Well, you know, my my last guest, it, it was interesting how you two ended up um, together on the same night because I think there were some threads of similarity, and I honestly didn't plan it this way. Uh, Ernie Garrett was talking about the mythology of cultural media, and you know, one of the first things I opened up the conversation with is the mythology of Fox News and how it has seemed to have bred this um this disinformation this paranoia this ugliness this hate mongering that i don't remember ever being so evident uh in the culture and it feels like they are literally creating um you know mythologies out of whole cloth whether it be you know obama you know was born in kenya and he's not you know when he's a muslim and where's his birth certificate and all uh, the multitude of uh, of of phony mythology or phony stories that are birthed um, out of an organization that's supposed to be about news. And, you know, it, it feels like to me uh, they have this facade of believability simply because they call themselves a news organization. But um, I, I don't know. It, 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 am I wrong to say that they're – they're fooling, you know. Uh, they're duping so many people. Or do you think they're just playing into uh, what these people want to believe?
0: They Fox News is a cancer in our society, and they will be remembered as such in 50 years. We'll look back on this period and look at what Fox News did, and and recoil in horror at the impact that they have had on our society. They celebrate ignorance they relish anti-science sentiment, Uh, they ignore the fundamentals of history, Um, they create stories out of whole cloth, they lie, Um, and it is both to create a political agenda and feeding into what almost half of the population wants to hear. So they have a willing audience, but they are feeding that audience in a way that is uh, unethical at every level.
1: Right. Well, and, you know, I asked my last guest, and, you know, I I don't think he really, uh, you know, quite understood where I was going with this question. Maybe you're, you know, a little better versed in it. What happened to our journalism, what happened to our news organizations that allowed this kind of thing to happen. You know, I, I, I mean, I don't think it was always this way. Was there a law that was passed that, you know, suddenly got rid of the firewall between news and entertainment? Um, you know, now there can there's no truth in advertising anymore. It's all buyer beware, survival of the fittest. I mean, and, and almost with pride, you know, it's like do whatever you want, just don't get caught. I don't remember it always being that way. I mean am I wrong or did something shift in our laws or in our culture that allowed this to just you know I'd love your your analogy of cancer that just allowed this cancer to grow and now it feels like it's metastasized
0: Well the there were no there were no change in laws that have allowed this to happen but what did allow it to happen is advances in technology and I'm no Luddite and I I am very much a big fan of the Internet. But the Internet very much destroyed traditional journalism. It created a means of anybody with a thought to distribute that thought without filter and without any kind of ground-truthing. And so what's happened is we have people like Fox News and Ann Coulter and Rush Limbaugh spewing hate and creating lies and fabricating stories, and there is no means based on the the method of distribution we have now, there is no means of filtering that for any truth. So it's really a con- it's a consequence of our advances in technology.
1: Hmm. Well, and I think it's hard for even well-meaning people, you know, to really get to the bottom of things and and know what's really true sometimes, because you don't always know um, who the people are that are disseminating the information either. I mean, I love how the right wing always, you know, these, these organizations take on these names that you would, you know, you, you'd think they're um, waving the flag. And um, yeah, I, I can't think of any off the top of my head, but, you know, Ray, Rachel I was always sort of uh shedding light on some of them, but if you'd read the name of their organization, it sounds like they're you know you, you know they're as innocent as apple pie, and uh you know you wouldn't think you know anything would come out of their mouth but absolute truth and goodness and it turns out they're you know something you know they're the biggest lie machine um uh, you know out there, and um it's it, it it's it makes it hard for someone who doesn't have a lot of time to figure Mm -hmm. out if they're being lied to or if they're really saying something, Um, you know, maybe they're revealing some truth that, uh, uh, I think you know what I'm trying to say, you know, it's hard to discern fact from fiction.
0: It is, and they do have funny names. I think there's one called Council for Environmental Truth, and it's uh, funded by the fossil fuel industry, those kind of things. So, the problem is that you we don't have a lot of time, and so you do have to want to be able to trust somebody, which is why we see the polarization that we do now. People watching MSNBC are not going to be the same people who watch Fox. Someone who watches Rachel Maddow is not going to be watching Bill O'Reilly because we have this extreme polarization. The interesting thing, though, and I think it's an important point, is that at least half the country, those who watch Fox News, are not interested in the truth. It's clear that they're not it's clear that they are very comfortable being being fed lies uh, as long as those lies serve another purpose or coincide with previously held beliefs they are quite comfortable with that and that is why it's such a cancer because in that is why it, as you said it's metastasized in our society because they that that half of the country that that is attracted to that type of disseminated news is not looking for the truth and they and so there there is no there is no need to provide that filter because that's not what they're looking for that's not what they want
1: yeah yeah well have you given any thought to um, if there's a solution or is it just going to get worse and worse? I mean, will there be a tipping point and these people will finally just understand that they were betrayed? Uh, but, you know, if it's like you said, they you know, they want to believe it, then um, I don't see a scenario where it, uh, where it shifts.
0: Well, it can go either way, but if you're an optimist, I think you can look at history and say that truth ultimately will triumph because fabricated news and lies eventually collapse upon their own weight. They can do lots of damage and it can create a lot of havoc, but I think if you take the long view over time, it will probably turn out such that Fox News is going to be history. I mean, look at the McCarthy era. At the time, th- that there was a, a horrible cancer in our the society then and eventually we were able to get past it. Also in our history we have we have other periods where there has been this kind of extremism before uh, earlier in our history between the Whig party and what was then called the Republican party so the kind of polarization the kind of extremism that we see is not it's not the first time i am somewhat optimistic maybe not even in my lifetime but i am somewhat optimistic that the kind of of false news that has been created by fox will eventually go away
1: Well, and, you know, well, they say that, um, you know, Rush Limbaugh is getting canceled off of more channels, and they say Fox News viewership has gone down. Um, You know, hopefully that's all true. You know, I mean, maybe that's, uh, uh, you know, maybe that is a sign that, uh, you know, that people are, uh, steering away um you know sometimes i've thought well you know they say fox news viewers are you know mostly old elderly people maybe we have to wait for most of them to die off i mean that that sounds like a terrible thing but um you know if if we could ever get to the point where the people watching fox news is only 10% of the country that would be a good thing
0: actually even only 40% 30% anything but 50% we'd be okay we because then they wouldn't have the majority or close to a majority to to affect the kind of change <coughs> Can call it change if they want. The problem, yeah. the problem, the problem is I see it that even as their numbers decline, and I think they will decline, and I think they will decline because over time the lies reveal themselves. And someone just keeps if Rush Limbaugh got on the radio every day and said that the sky is red, at some point someone's going to, after looking at the sky for twenty consecutive days, is going go, wait a minute, there's just not something right about that. And I think at yeah. some point the lies do collapse under their own weight, but we're not anywhere near out of the woods. I mean, Ben Carson, one of the leading Republican candidates for the presidency, shockingly and, and embarrassingly, has said that the theory of evolution was inspired by Satan. And he's he is a rising star. And that's a quote, by the way, inspired by Satan. Yeah. He, he is a rising star in the Republican Party. So there is this um, celebration of ignorance, this celebration of anti-science. And, and, and this is in a world where Technological prowess is essential for success, and, and the Republican Party is very much trying to take us in the in the opposite direction. They're, they they deny that climate change is real. They're anti-evolution. The um, they they uh, are against um, advances in science and medicine that are not religious based. It's it's really they are really taking us in the wrong direction
1: well and and there's so and, and like you said i mean you've you've just said all of those different things and uh i mean i know it's all absolutely true and it's really mind boggling when you think about it um i can't even i, I mean he, Because, you know, so many of them are all about the money, too I mean, it's not really even in their economic interest In a way to be against uh, some of those things Um, You know, I I don't understand, honestly The desire to wallow uh, in ignorance And I think I really noticed it I mean, maybe it was around before But when it really uh, came to light for me That they were, you know, they prided themselves On, you know, uh, being anti intellectual was when sarah palin hit the scene you know mm-hmm. uh, i i think that's that's when it really sort of slapped me in the face um it, but you know maybe it had been going on before then but she she certainly brought it to my attention
0: no you're absolutely right about sarah palin she was a game changer she she changed the dynamic of our national political discourse where it was okay to be stupid it was okay yeah. for someone who, who sought national office to actually be really stupid. Not someone whose views I disagree with, not someone who had a different worldview, but actually dumb. And, and, that, and her, her ignorance and her stupidity was considered an asset on the right. And that really was the first time that we saw that in our history, at a national level, for a presidential election, more stupidity and ignorance were celebrated to that level. She really was a game changer.
1: Well, and and uh, I mean I'm no psychologist, but I would love to have a shrink. Uh and maybe I'll do that on the show sometime if, if you know, if uh and I'll, you know, put that out there uh, you know, to listeners. I would like to really Legitimately understand that psychology I mean because if you really care about the country, if you really care about survival, if you really want to stay you know, in the most powerful country in the world like they think we are, then why I mean why would you not be competitive? why would you um, you know pride yourself on on this ignorance and being the laughingstock of the world and you know not keep up with technology or any of these things you know like we were talking about science. And, and and all of that. I mean, I it it I mean there's a cognitive disconnect there. You know, um and uh, I, you know, it it's like the you know the kids all who got Ds and Fs in school maybe they can suddenly feel good about themselves. I mean, I don't know, could it be that simple?
0: Well, we had 8 years of George Bush and he <laughs> was not the bulb in the chandelier. We know that. And and we had 8 years of a disastrous Leadership, and again, it's a, it's, it's a demonstration that the Republican Party that celebrates ignorance is going to take us down a very bad path. But the reason why it exists, the reason why it has survived, is because there is an audience for it. So that that this and this gets into a completely different subject, probably for another another time. But there is a difference, a clear divide in our country between those who are rationally based, who believe. That there is an objective truth that can be identified through uh, scientific investigation and um, some ground truthing, and there are faith those who have faith-based reasoning, where reasoning and their thought process is not connected in any way to any kind of objective truth. If you believe it is true, and so that 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 part of our community where, where that, that has faith-based reasoning is can be subject to that. Kind of rhetoric and that that type of political discourse, they, it, it's attractive to them. And so the people who want to get elected are pandering to that part of our society that feels that way.
1: Well, you know, I wonder though about the uh, you know the people in the Republican Party though who um, you know who who are intelligent. I mean, uh, what you know, I I, I can't even imagine uh, what type of, um, you know, disconnect they must be having in their brain right now. I mean, I don't know if if they're full of shame, if they're um, just gobsmacked. Uh, I, I mean, I guess I, I just wonder how they can continue to be a part of it and why none of them have stepped up instead of letting you know their party get hijacked and and become um you know looked upon as such you know buffoons
0: part of it is the way that the Republican party is organized for their primary season it it is skewed toward extremism so what you have is you have a a primary method that selects extreme candidates which are then not that, that's not necessarily electable at the national level. And we've seen that happen again and again. I think there's clearly a war within the Republican Party and the mainstream Republicans who are not as extreme and who do not celebrate ignorance are desperately trying to figure out a way to grasp power back from the Tea Party and those who, and those who are even more extreme than the Tea Party. The Republican Party is in complete disarray. Just look at the people on stage at the debate for the Republican nomination. It is a freak show. It, it, it's, a Sabanet Live skit could not come up with a more bizarre set of candidates and a, a, a freakier set of circumstances for people who are actually trying to run for the presidency of this country. And so I think what you're looking at is a Republican Party, which is a really in complete disarray.
1: Well, I, I realize that. I mean, I know, uh, I, I I totally get that, that it's, uh, you know, the, the the establishment candidates who probably, you know, who do value uh, intelligence versus the rest. However, I, you know, and maybe this is just unrealistic on my part, um, or maybe it's just stuff that's said behind closed doors, but I, I guess I, I would just expect... Um, someone come out to come out and spill the beans, kind of the way, you know, people sort of spilled the beans on the Benghazi thing, you know, and came out and said this really was a partisan attack. You know, why doesn't somebody on the right who cares about the party, I mean, look, I don't want them to succeed, but it, it makes sense to me, you know, why wouldn't somebody on the right come out and say, look, you know this this charade has gone on long enough. you know we can't keep being anti intellectual you know we can't you know we we're 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 the laughing stocks you know we have we can't let our party be hijacked this way, but it doesn't you don't hear that unless it's um because you're not going to hear it on m s n b c and Fox News wouldn't let stuff like that be said I, I don't know
0: well. The, the the problem is, and the reason why I, I don't think anybody on the right is doing that, is because we have entered a time in our culture where facts are an option, that reality is an opinion, and that uh, faith has the same weight uh, as facts. And so, a candidate who comes up and tries to speak reasonably about let's just say, let, let's take a really concrete example to demonstrate what I'm talking about. Let's take the Clinton so-called email scandal. Well, the right has made a huge deal out of Clinton's email relative to Benghazi, but the right has never acknowledged that Colin Powell used personal email when he was Secretary of State. Not a single news, mm-hmm. Fox News story. Chuck Hagel, when he was Secretary of Defense, used his personal email. Carl Rowe, when he was White House, White House Deputy Chief of Staff, used his personal email 90% of the time. But Check this out. What, what Donna, uh, Clinton was disparaged because she had not provided all emails that were on her personal server. She deleted something like thirty-one thousand. Well, the Bush White House deleted millions of emails in the in in the in the face of uh, a, a justice investigation, and they were forced to reveal during the investigation under oath that they, in fact, have been using personal email. None of that has ever come out in the stories on any of the Republican or right-wing news uh, media about the fact that what Clinton has done with email is not only nowhere near as egregious, it's not even close to what the Republicans have done when they were in power. But but people don't want to hear it. It's a fact. That fact is inconvenient, and therefore, it's not worth mentioning. If, you're, if you have faith-based reasoning, facts do not influence your thought process.
1: But, Jeff, listen, I don't think we can let the left off the hook either. I mean, where are the Democrats saying that? I mean, I haven't even heard Hillary Clinton say that, you know, to defend herself. Um, It it really bugs me. I mean, maybe it it falls into that category of the Democrats always, uh, you know, go into a a gunfight with a knife, you know, however that expression goes. But it just feels like the Democrats never get out there and fight back. And and, you know, give the alternative story, and you know and that that annoys me greatly and i don 't know if it 's because you know the Democrats are pandering you know the corporatist democrats are are pandering to uh you know the same people as as the right wing uh at least you know when it comes to um you know big donors you know because they need their money but it, i i'm i'm amazed that we don 't see you know people on the left you know where are the surrogates on? The left countering all of the disinformation that comes out of the right it just doesn't seem like it comes out in equal balance
0: well you you hit upon the one issue that i am most disappointed with in in the the democratic party they never do defend themselves clearly there's a lot of examples of that The, the most recent the most horrible one is during the last midterm election democrats to not only not run on Obama's amazingly successful record and on the amazing success of, of, of the Affordable Care Act, they ran away from it, and every one of the candidates who ran away from uh, Obama lost. Those who embraced him won. It's it, it's a mystery that the Democrats will not embrace their own success, and and you and they do not bring up the most obvious counterpoint to some of the most ridiculous Republican attacks. For example, let's go back to Benghazi for one second. No one, I have heard nobody say, it would be a simple soundbite that could be on every Sunday show, that we have devoted more time, energy, and money to investigating the four deaths in Benghazi than we did into what happened at Pearl Harbor, or who shot JFK, or how was the Civil War conducted, we, we or, or, for example, any of the bombings in Africa that killed 224 people or the 168 people that died in the Oklahoma City bombing or, amazingly, even 9-11. We have spent more time and more money investigating Benghazi, those four deaths, and we have 9-11. The absurdity of, of the absurdity of that is astonishing, and the left has not brought that up. I have never heard that said in any of the talk shows.
1: Well, you know, I've I've said that you know uh, I, I've said that a lot, you know, to my friends and you know and, and you know in personal conversations and you know I've said it occasionally here on my show when we've been political, but it seems like you know I, I theorize that it it it's in the psychological makeup differences between the right and the left, um, I, I, you know. I there's been scholars that have actually said that conservatives and liberals um their brains are wired differently, and you know, you know i tend to I, I tend to believe this, and i'm trying to remember all the details now, but the gist of it is that um you know uh liberals tend to be more passive and have this live and let live attitude and I think to our detriment. Um, you know, that is sort of the psychological makeup of a liberal. They're not going to become, you know, rabid and crazy zealots like the right does. Like, for instance, you know, when they're killing, you know, abortion doctors. You know, they just don't get all worked up. So you have one side that gets all worked up, and you get the other side that says, oh, I don't give a shit. And so what do you end up with? You have the right always steamrolling the left. And, I mean, that's at least what it feels like to me, but you know the people who get paid, you know, to be you know to be politicians, to be the ones that are um, in control of the Democratic Party. Uh, it would seem to me it should be their job to have a microphone uh, to counter these attacks. And when they don't, I mean, I hate to sound conspiracy theorist, but it almost makes me feel like, well, for some reason they don't want to. No, you
0: know? I think and that. What... <clears throat> I think we are wired differently. We have different worldviews, and I think the re- the reality is there is more fervor with faith than there is in reason. Um, so the people who are passionate and, and, and fervent about their beliefs are the ones that are faith-based, because they, they they just really believe it, independent of any truth or objective fact. On the on the left, I think there's the the tendency with the more or less naive I mean belief that truth will prevail. And I think that's one of the reasons why that we have this disconnect between how rabid the right is in their views and how passive sometimes the left is in promoting theirs. But there's a, there's an odd paradox in there as well. If you listen to conservatives and conservative um, uh, think tanks, their their big their big central theme is small government and getting the government off of people's backs. And yet. They are for a large military, which is the government, and they are for having the government in your bedroom and in your doctor's office telling you what you can do with your sex lives and your doctors and your own bodies so there's yeah. the, there is there is an intellectual disconnect on the right which does not serve any kind of rational purpose it is it is all based on a faith in their beliefs that is in in no way tethered to reality. And I think, in fact, it's not reality gives them an advantage. It gives them ability to be passionate about something simply because they believe it, whereas we are constrained by objective truth, and they're not.
1: Right. Right. Well, you know, I just uh, I mean, I don't know what it's going to take for, uh, you know, for the left. I mean, you know, I'm really I'm really pleased to see how people are rising up for Bernie Sanders. And it's the first time it feels like in a long time that there's been any life uh, on the left. Uh, I mean, at least he's saying things, you know, about the bankers, about the income inequality. I mean, it's amazing to me how the left has just you know, uh, just lost all the ground that they have. I mean, they've been talking on the news constantly about how uh, you know, the right is in control of all the governorships, of all the congresses across the country, you know, on the state level. I mean, the the Democrats are in really bad shape. And, uh, you know, I, I what is it going to take for them to you know, take a play, you know, some of the uh, plays out of the rights playbook and have a long term plan to get control uh, again, you know, to fight back against this um, this insanity that, in, I mean, in my opinion, is destroying the country, although they would say the same thing, you know, it's the liberal left-wing media.
0: <laughs> right. I, I don't think we're the Democrats are in such bad shape. I think there are natural swings in the political cycle. I mean, don't forget that the, the liberals did come out with passion to support President Obama in two elections. And that's basically yeah. saved our country so the left does rally sometimes, and they do come um, to together to create a good outcome and I also think that politically, to look nationally we're not we're not so bad off, yeah that, that we we do lose in, in some midterm elections, and there is a, an increase in the number of Republican governors, but that that swings that that's just a normal pendulum in in the political world, but what I think we have to be careful on the left. Yes, I think Bernie Sanders is a very interesting character, and he brings up some very good points. So does Elizabeth Warren. But he's not going to get elected president. Uh, that's the reality of it. No matter how much we like him, he is not a national candidate. He, is, he, he cannot appeal to a rural voter in Iowa. It's just not going to happen. Uh, if, whether or not you like Hillary Clinton... Uh, if you do not want a Republican in the Oval Office in the next election, you really have no choice but to vote for Hillary, whether you like her or not. That's the reality that we face and By the way, we had better get a Democrat in the Oval Office if we want to secure the future of the affordable care act so no yes, i i, I that. Go ahead, sorry
1: well well no i i- under, i understand that, but I really wonder it it explain uh, explain to me why Bernie is not electable. I, I, I mean, I hear people say it all the time, but, you know, I can't help but wonder if it's just, um, you know, sort of the the status, you know, the, the you know, the, the Democratic Party that, you know, has determined that it's, you know, Hillary has to be our candidate. And, you know, they don't really want to hear what Bernie's saying because, you know, he kind of goes against, you know, all the corporatism and the bankers, and I'm not sure she does. I mean, why? Why do you think he's not electable?
0: He's not electable for the same reason that I think that Chris Christie is not electable. He is um, very appealing to a uh, and passionately appealing to a small number of voters. In the case of Chris Christie, it's the regional. Um, people in New Jersey uh, love him because of what he's done. But it doesn't translate to, to the national level. I think Bernie's the same way. He's a north, uh, he's a northeastern um, liberal who uh, appeals to a very strong demographic that does not appeal to anybody outside that demographic or very few people out of it. And and to get into the White House, you have to have broad appeal, and he simply does not. He has he has strong narrow appeal. I like him very much, but in a national election, you have to appeal to a voter in uh, Orange County. Uh, uh, California and the cornfields of Iowa, and, and Bernie can't do be that. He just has, just does not have that kind of national appeal. He's a little bit too left. To say. I mean, as much as I hate to say, it, he's a little bit too left wing.
1: Well, um, well, you know, well, well, let's keep talking about this because um, I, I'm, you know, you know, I, I have some thoughts of my own, and I'd love to hear your your counter. Um, I mean, he he talks about one of the reasons he's been able to stay the senator in his state so long is because he also appeals to Republicans, and he believes that one of the reasons you know he will succeed is because it's not just you know the left that's going to vote for him, but he thinks that you know he can get moderate. Republicans to vote for him too. And I don't know, you know, I it just may be naive, but I kind of believe him because I guess I feel like, uh, well, you know, using my own barometer, you know, that the country has gone so far right that we have to go way far left just to get back to the middle, you know? And um, I, I don't know. That's that's sort of how I I think about it. So the stuff he's talking about doesn't seem so extreme. It just feels like a reset of um, you know where things used to be and ought to be again. Um, and I, I don't know. I, I guess I'm not convinced that he's going to sound so extreme to people. I think he might sound yeah. like a breath of fresh air and hope.
0: Do you think that he would sound like a breath of? fresh air to someone who thinks that evolution is inspired by Satan.
1: But they're not going to vote pro- for Hillary either. I you know, I'm not talking about that, you know, that uh, crazy evangelical irrational Republican. You know, I'm talking about an Eisenhower Republican or, you know, a moderate Republican, you know, that, you know, still values their their intellect. Um, you so know, look, so if he can
0: go ahead. Look look at President Obama. His extraordinary success and his amazing stewardship of this country through one of the worst crises we've ever had and through two wars comes not from a left-wing extremism. It comes from his centrism. It comes from the fact that he is grounded pretty much in the center. And and to the point where a lot of people on the left think he didn't go far enough. It took took him a long time to to satisfy the LGBT community. Uh, There's a lot of things that he did that took a long time. So I think that... Success in the country, as much as I would love to counterbalance the extremism on the right with extremism on the left, it's very appealing intellectually and emotionally. It really is. But in terms of the the ugly uh, mechanics of elections, I just don't think it will work.
1: Well, I I hear you, but, you know, I'm not sure I would call, I mean, believe it or not, you know, they they love to call Bernie Sanders extreme, but I don't see him as extreme, quite honestly. You know, when you see what happens in, you know, in Europe and the kind of benefits that people have in Europe, why can't we have those kinds of benefits? You know, when you hear he wants to, you know, break up the banks, well, we need that desperately. When he says, um, let Saudi Arabia, you know, fight some of the wars over there in the Middle East? Why do we have to do it? You know, that makes sense. Um, you know, so much of it, I think, um, it doesn't sound extremist at all. I, I think it really just sounds like Common sense, and that doesn't take anything away. Uh, I think from President Obama, you know, he he has done a, a good job, especially with the you know the stuff he was handed by you know the the Bush administration. I, you know, I'm not so crazy about his foreign policy, and and you know all the time. I mean, now we you know we're getting boots on the ground in Syria, and that is that going to end up, you know, being an escalation. I mean, it's always about feeding the military industrial complex. You know, somebody. He's going to have to, you know, have the guts to, you know, uh, to stop writing that blank check, you know, all the time. But, you know, there's a lot of things President Obama hasn't done that he could have done that, um, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, he hasn't made it a priority to, um, you know, to, uh, to, I think, really look out for the middle class. I mean, he he got on board with some of these austerity measures that the Republicans wanted to push through, Um And I realized what he was up against with the Republicans. I mean, honestly, I mean, they weren't going to, you know, work with him no matter what. I mean, it was obvious, you know, they would be for something. And as soon as he was for it, then they were suddenly against their own plan. You know, I get that. But, you know, I I really do believe that, you know, um, if the mainstream media wasn't continuing to say Bernie is unelectable, (laughs) Bernie is unelectable, if they changed that and said, you know what? this is what we need, I think the low-information voters wouldn't be afraid to vote for him. Um, I don't know. I just don't see him as that extreme. I I think he's a reset.
0: You wouldn't see him as extreme because you are reasonable and you already are to the left of center. And so when you look at someone like Bernie Sanders, he does seem like a breath of fresh air and seem reasonable. But I would just say that that we as a nation, better or worse, maybe worse, but for better or worse, are a capitalistic society that um, relies very much on individualism. Bernie is promoting what is essentially, for better or worse, a socialist agenda. And I don't mean that in any pejorative way. I think much of what he says has great merit, although Europe has many, many problems. But if you if you delve into some of his proposals, uh, many of them are budget-busting. And I think some of what he describes sounds good, sounds appealing to someone like you and me, but it's not practical in terms of, uh, of real governance and and real budget. I mean, I I would love to have someone like him, um, have great influence. Whoever is the next president, I, I would I'd be a little bit uncomfortable having actually having him in the Oval Office. I, but you know what? It's it's a matter of if if he can pull it off. Then if he became if, let me tell you this: if he became the Democratic candidate, I'd vote for him in a heartbeat.
1: Right. Well, you know, uh, I worry that um, as devoted as his followers are, if the Democratic Party don't treat him fairly, that I'm really concerned that, um, you know, people will stay home. And cut off their nose to spite their face, and right. we will have a hard hard time winning. So I hope somebody's smart enough to recommend that if um, you know that that they they combine and you know that that Hillary and Bernie are on the same ticket, because then maybe you could still keep the enthusiasm on the left, because, you know, I I know her numbers look good, but I just don't see that people are that excited yet about Hillary. You know, I think she, um, you know, I think her candidacy would just be tinkering around the edges and not making significant enough change to really fix the income inequality, to fix the social safety net, to, you know, improve the lives of people who are, you know, poor and lower middle class. Um, you know, I, I, I think she's kind of just given lip service to some of these things because she doesn't want Bernie to run away with it. Uh, but I don't, uh, you know, I hate to say it because I would love to have a woman president, but I can't trust her 100% that she's really not going to just be a corporatist, you know, when she gets in there. And, you know, do we need, you know, do we need more of that? I, I don't think so. Um, so I don't know. That's well, that's sorry. my worry. I, mean,
0: I, I You know, Hillary is not a lovable candidate. It's very difficult to get excited about her. Um, She has a long and sordid history. Um, She has a very caustic management style. There's many things that I don't like about her. Um, And she is not as far left as I'd like her to be. Um, But... I I also am uh, having spent many years in Washington. Am I'm kind of a pragmatist about some of these things. I mean, I I, if I don't think I'm going to get much of what I want with any candidate. If I can get some just a few of the big things, and prevent the other side from doing really stupid things, I think we come out on top. Um, I I think that we need to ensure that we um, embed in our society and forever forever more the Affordable Care Act. Um, I think we need to to extend. Um, some of the foreign policy uh, successes that Obama has had using diplomacy rather than military force, unless it's a left possibility. Um, So I think, yeah, I mean, I'm not excited about Hillary, and she's not my favorite Democrat, but I think she can be an effective president in terms of stopping the right from being completely crazy on us. And I think that's what we need right now.
1: Well, I, I I hear you. I, I mean, I hear you, and I don't. You know, I I don't totally disagree. I I, I guess I would just. You know, maybe, you know, say, because um, I want to get on to your article about, the you know, the Benghazi thing, you know, just to sort of prove the point about what we've been talking about. But, you know, I, I guess I just want to say it feels like to me, and this is just my personal op- opinion, that things have gotten so bad for the poor and middle class. The, and, you know, there, there's so much to be fixed. We've lost so much ground over the last couple decades that we have to have the courage to not just be a pragmatist. I think we have to have, the, I think we have to shoot for something bigger, you know, um, that w- I think we have to dream bigger and shoot bigger, and because if we, you know, if we only expect a little bit, I think we're going to get less than a little bit, but if we shoot for something big, maybe we'll at least get some of it, and and I, I don't know, and that's that's kind of... I mean, it's sort of like when you negotiate. You know, when you know, if if you negotiate with your boss, you go in and you ask for more because you know he's going to just give you less than what you want. But if you you know go in and just ask for a little piece, you might end up with nothing. <laughs> if that makes any sense, you, you know
0: ask, what I mean. Or if you ask for too much, you get fired. See, that's the dilemma. So this is oh, this is, we're getting to the heart of uh, of what our all political dilemma comes down to. So, do do you uh, base your candidates on ideological purity? And I don't mean that in a bad sense. I mean those who really reflect your views and who really push for the things you care about most, with a good chance or reasonable chance, is not going to get elected, and therefore can affect no change at all because you're not in power, or do you compromise your ideology? Get someone who is elected and take some kind of compromise in getting part of what you want done? That is a classic dilemma, and there is no good solution to it. It's, it's all it's all um, guesswork. You don't really know how far to push that in any one election. It really is a gut instinct. With, with no way to know.
1: Yeah, yeah, and 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 I hear you, and and but I I wonder if um, mm-hmm. this trend that we're seeing on the right and the left to um, want big things and not settle for the same old, same old, is maybe um, an indicator that this might be the year that you know enough people are willing to to aim for something bigger than settling for just mediocrity or less. You know, I don't know.
0: Well, um, if, I think I think if Bernie becomes the candidate, we'll find that we will answer that question. If he's elected, yeah. we'll know. Yeah, I mean, he, he, if he if he is smart enough and clever enough to actually get the nomination, then we will have that question answered when the, at the elec- on election night.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I, I, you know, I think he's, you know, I, look, I may be biased, you know, but I think he's, he's, pro- he's been around a long time. I think he's probably pretty smart, and you know, I would, I, I can't imagine that he's going to put forth proposals that he can't stand behind, that he knows the Republicans should, sh- could shoot holes through, or he doesn't think that the, you know, uh, the Democratic Party would feel like they could. Uh, defend. So I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, um, I I'm I'm still in the I'm I'm still thinking that I'm I'd rather take a chance with him and and ride it mm-hmm. out to the very end. You know, even to the, um, uh, you know the the you know to the point where you know the, uh you know they're they're nominated. You know, uh, I I mean I'm not sure you know how that how that would all end up going, but I I, I just. Really, sincerely worry that the um, the supporters, you know, his supporters won't support Hillary. Uh, I mean, I hear it at the rallies and stuff. You know, uh, I mean, it's not that they're just for Bernie; they're also anti-Hillary. And are they afraid enough? Uh, of a Republican in the White House that they'd vote for anyway, I hope so uh, um, yeah
0: those are those are all the unknowns yeah those those are the factors that we don't there's no way we can get a handle on until we see the results. There's really no way to know
1: right, right, well, well, Jeff, I've loved talking to you about all of this, but let's talk about your article a little bit because i really um I really love this article, Who will investigate the investigators, and I don't know, do you have it in front of you by any chance?
0: I can bring it up very quickly, yep
1: okay well um it's it's really lengthy, and um you know of course I don't want to you know read it paragraph by paragraph, but you know you make some um you know you make some really valid points that uh you know I would like uh you to maybe share with listeners because I'm sure they're sort of tired of hearing about the Benghazi thing, or look, for all I know they've buried their head in the sands and they haven't heard much at all, but the way you've laid it out, you know you have showed how bl- Blatantly, um, uh, you know, partisan. The Republicans have uh, have been with this story. How there is really no story there, and they've tried to create something out of whole cloth. Especially, you know, how you get into you know all the embassies that were attacked under Bush, and you know nobody even said a word. So. Do you want to sort of just give us an overview of the article, maybe hit some of the high points um, to show, um, you know, how uh, how unscrupulous or, you know, the Republicans just so totally lack integrity with this particular subject, you know, that they have on Hillary?
0: Yeah, I, I think there are three takeaway lessons from the article. The first is that the level of effort into investigating Benghazi is disproportionate by any historical standard, which we can talk about. The second is that we we have an incredible hypocrisy on the part of the right about who is to blame when things go wrong. They never take blame for themselves when something goes wrong, and they always blame the Democrat if the Democrat can be blamed, and we'll get into some details of that. And then the third is that um, the media um, is, the uh, mainstream and Fox, is uh, – culpable here because they have not presented to the public these kinds of hypoc- uh, hypocritical uh, positions taken by the right. So I think those are the three kind of main main areas uh, that come out of the article. For example, I think I mentioned this early in the broadcast that um, we, we are now investigating the four deaths in Benghazi it's, it's been over three years, in fact over 1,100 days. Um, That's longer and more money and more time and effort than we took to investigate why we were vulnerable at Pearl Harbor, who who assassinated JFK, or the Iran Contra scandal. Um, We spent 30 months investigating the Kennedy assassination. We have now spent three years investigating uh, Benghazi. Um, But there are some very specific oddities about that. For example, in 1998, there were two bombings in Africa in which 224 people were killed. In 1995, in Oklahoma City, there was a bombing which killed 168 people. There was virtually no investigation into those. So we're investigating four deaths at an embassy and not investigating 124 100 deaths in, in, uh, in an embassy bombing. But uh, more odd, the oddest thing to me of all is that we are spending more time, money, and energy in investigating the Gazi than we did 9-11. Think about the absurdity of that. More than 3,000 people died in the worst terrorist attack ever on our soil. And we, have, we are investigating that less than we investigated the four deaths in Benghazi. It is absurd at every level. And here is where we get into the second part of the second story here, and that is who's, who takes blame. The Bush administration has never taken blame for 9-11. It happened on their watch, and it was totally preventable. Thomas Keene, who was a Republican governor of New Jersey, he was appointed by Bush to head up the 9-11 Commission, concluded 9-11, this is a quote, 9-11 could have and should have been prevented. And it's clear that it should have been prevented because Condoleezza Condoleezza Rice had on her desk prior to the attack memos saying that Bin Laden was going to fly uh, airplanes into buildings, including the, the World Trade Center. Totally preventable. Have they ever taken any responsibility for that? No, it's the opposite of that. They say that Bush kept us safe. That's the mantra of the right: that Bush kept us mm-hmm. safe. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. He allowed to ha- he allowed to happen on our soil the worst terrorist attack ever. And then we come to the third part of the story. The media has never brought up that that point. They 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 have bought this story that Bush has kept us safe. And yet they are the same media, and mainstream as well, that is focused on the four deaths in Benghazi and blaming Clinton for that. So do you blame Clinton and then not blame Bush? There is no rationale for that. Or do you blame Clinton and do not blame Condoleezza Rice? There is no justification for that. You can't have that kind of selective outrage. It doesn't make any sense. To right. me, that's the story. That's the story.
1: Well. Well, well, I I agree with you. And again, I think it goes back to the Democrats, you know, because the whole, um, you know, the whole invasion of Iraq, you know, I think Democrats were afraid to uh, not go to war because they were going to look weak, you know, because Republicans always make the Democrats, you know, look to be weak while they're the warmongers. And, right. you know, I think people like Hillary Clinton were afraid to vote against it because they thought that um you know it it was the thing to do you know uh to to stand up against it like people like bernie sanders did and people like obama did um right. you know they did they didn't have the moral courage uh to do that and um you know it again it just annoys me i i mean well look when valerie Plame was outed the cia agent that should have been treason you know but well, but there's always Cheney,
0: this Cheney, double standard the well, that's the selective outrage it's it's another way of saying double standard you're outraged when when a Democrat does it and you support it when a republican does it it's the same thing it It's a crazy form of political uh discourse. It doesn't make any sense in in terms of valor claiming let's be serious um uh, Dick Cheney should be in jail he is he is an admitted war criminal. And that's not extreme. I'm not being an extreme left wing radical here. I mean, he is a, he has admitted himself in public supports for acts which are, by national and international standards, war crimes. He should be in jail. I know. And he know. outed and staff outed a CIA agent, which is a treasonous act. It's actually treason, it's defined as treason. So, yes, he so, should be in jail. He's about it.
1: So Jeff, you were in Washington. What's wrong with the Democrats that they don't fight back about such obvious? You know, I mean, if, if these aren't these aren't hard things to understand. You know, these are easy things to defend. You know, why don't they defend them? I mean, other than what we've already said, is you know, what's the deal with them?
0: Well, I I, I think, and it's. It's misplaced, and I think it's ineffective. But I think the Democratic Party historically has always tried to take the high road, to not get into the gutter, and to uh, argue on, on on based on sorry about that now, uh, to argue okay. on facts, facts and reason, and um, hoping that. Truth will eventually win the day, and I, I think that it's a flawed strategy. But I do think that it's what lar- it, it, it largely drives the democratic strategy, however misplaced it is.
1: Well, you know, I think with all of the internet media and stuff like this now, you know, I think they really need to rethink it because they should have as many surrogates out there, you know, putting out their agenda as the right does. Uh, otherwise, I, I think the, I, I think they're fools. Uh, quite frankly um, I mean I, I can't uh, I can't say it any other way And uh, no, it, it mean, feels I, like I to me they, sure. they have a lot of people's yeah. lives at stake You know Because yeah. um, we're stuck with them you know we're stuck with them, and they feel ineffectual. Uh, you know, and they just don't feel like uh, they're up for any kind of a fight. And uh, look, you know, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm a, you know, I, I think a typical liberal. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I don't think I'm a zealot, but it would be nice to see somebody have some fight in them for once, instead of just, you know, always rolling over and playing dead and taking the high road when you know there's a steamroller, you know, steamroller coming after you. You
0: know? <laughs> um, so Are you one still the there? Reasons, I'm, yeah, I am. And one of the reasons why uh, the, the, what you've just said is what motivates me to blog. Um, it's why I blog, because I get mad. And I wish people would say more of the same things that I'm saying. And so sometimes I feel like I'm a lone voice in the wilderness bringing out things like Benghazi, which if you read my article and when you get done reading you go, well, that's pretty obvious. That's really ridiculous. But for right. some reason, um, the, it just—it's not—it hasn't captured the, the the Democratic Party that they need to fight like this, and it is a very big source of frustration. And that's really why I blog. I'm hoping that people right. uh, read my blogs, but you know, it's a small audience, I and mean, any one person can only have a small voice unless you are some kind of national media star. And so, yeah. you know, and, and my blog—it's—it's it's, um, so you know I, I reach. Uh, with with retweeting retweet retweeting, and Facebook and other social media, maybe on a really good blog, I'll reach a hundred thousand people. That's not going to affect yeah. much change. You have to reach millions yeah. to, to affect any change.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean you have to be Borowitz, you know, or or uh, right. you know somebody somebody like that, you know. Um, well, Jeff, we, we we probably only have about seven minutes left here, uh, and I, I think I want to close with um, this idea of the uh, the you know the liberal media. Uh, Joe Scarborough went uh, ballistic the other day talking about the liberal media, and here he is on MSNBC with three hours in the morning. Keith Oberman, when he left, said Joe Scarborough. Uh, you know Had control of what pundits Actually came on uh, You know you know Everybody's show uh, We've seen since they got rid of um, You know some of you know um, Oh I can't even think of their names now It's getting late but we, you know some of the real Left wing people on MSNBC right. And replaced them with moderates I mean we don't except for uh, You know from 5 o'clock to 8 o'clock Yeah we maybe have three liberal Commentators on MSNBC I don't know how they continue to get away with this idea of the liberal media. There is no liberal media. I mean, who do we really have, Amy?
0: It's the big lie that keeps getting repeated. There is no liberal media. There's media, and there are media that – Starts to the left of center, and they're meeting to the right of center. For every every station or person you give me that's left wing, I'll give you a right wing equivalent. I mean, there's right wing media. What about what? Well, let's talk about the right wing media. Um, Rush Limbaugh, um, Ann Coulter, um, Sean Hannity, um, uh, um, Bill O'Reilly, um, all of the Fox Newscast, I mean, of uh, the the Washington Times, the Wall Street Journal. Um, I mean, there is there's nothing but right wing media. It's, it's a right. absurd that we're talking about. There is no left wing media. It's an absurd concept. It's a big lie, and it's just something that's pushed on us by the right wing media.
1: Well, and I think that's another thing that the Democrats ought to be talking about and aren't. I mean, there's a lot of things the Democrats really ought to be talking about and aren't. Because quite frankly, I mean, here I go again on Bernie, but if the Democrats would pick up more of the message of Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders wouldn't sound so extreme. Because all the things that Bernie Sanders is talking about is what the Democrats were supposed to be for, you know, but they've sort of just drifted right you know, and, and became corporatist and, you know, just sort of stopped worrying about the unions and stopped worrying about the average working person. So, anyway. <laughs>
0: so <I> think, <laughs> well, I Jeff, it might be taking too dark of a picture, though. I mean, we have made huge strides on the left with, with rights for LGBT, um, raising the minimum wage, at least at the federal level. Um, yeah, there's a long, long way to go and there's a lot of huge problems, but I think the left has made some progress. I mean I think if you talk to people on the right, they think that with the advance of gay marriage, um that the society's coming apart because the left wing is one. So I mean I think right. I, I think we made progress on the left. I don't think it's as bleak as you're making out to be. I think we've done some good things on the left.
1: Well, I, we have, and I don't mean to downplay it, but, uh, and, and I'm so glad for all, you know, my lesbian and gay friends that finally they have equality. That's not a little thing. But, no. you know, I, I but, but when, but I think there are bigger problems than that. You know, I I mean, if I had to choose between solving poverty and, you know, uh, fixing the social safety net and, you know, raising the minimum wage to $15, I mean, I think, you know, those things would all benefit the lesbian and gay community, too you know um and especially women you know women are disproportionately affected by you know all of these things you know the, uh, not having equal pay you know poverty uh, i mean the social safety net being destroyed so it feels like to me while that is a, a wonderful cultural um you know uh advance you know economically um you know i i think the, i think economics to me, are more important in some sense than, you know, the cultural issues and progress that we've made. It would be wonderful if we could have it all, but, you know, I'm yeah. more concerned with people not being able to pay their bills and having to work three jobs and, you know, CEOs making 500 times more than their workers and people not having sick pay, you know, that that right. sort of thing, you know. But those are the things, to me, are more important um, than some of the some of the progress we've made, you know, because even yeah. Obamacare, you know, I mean, I, I'm paying higher premiums now than I did before Obamacare. I'm glad more people have insurance, but I really don't. I, I'm not sure that I'm really better off. Yeah, so,
0: I'm paying less for that coverage actually under it. Say, so I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Say happy. again. I said I'm. We're actually paying less for more coverage. so I'm actually pretty happy with it.
1: Well, I wish I could less. say that you know maybe it's the difference in our age or something but um you know we i you know my premiums are actually higher and and in January they're going up another 100 dollars so yeah. um you know i you know i got anthem blue cross and that's uh that's sort of the the story you know i am protected at least now i can't you know get dropped you know for pre existing right. condition because or
0: right.
1: you know i i mean and at least i, I feel more best. secure but and i'm no, not saving money
0: Insurance. Well, there's forty more. Also, a It's important in terms of protecting the poor. There are forty more million more people now who have insurance, which is yeah, huge. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's a good thing. By the way, yeah, some of these social issues, though, though, are are important, especially for women. For example, on the issue of abortion, if the Republicans want to take away, very clearly, and 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 uh overtly want to take away the right of a woman to control her own reproductive destiny. That's a social yeah. issue, but it's also it's also an economic issue though.
1: Yeah. Because yeah. women
0: who control the reproductive rights are more successful uh, economically. So I mean right. they, they they overlap, they're not mutually exclusive ideas. The difference between the economic and the social. And I think we just have to yeah. try to make progress on fronts. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I mean, and, and I really worry too. If uh, well, I mean, we have to win the White House because you know we can't get another conservative on the Supreme Court either. I Absolutely mean, that would be de- that would be devastating. It it will be the that end very- of it all.
0: It really would be. <laughs> no, I mean, it would it would, it would destroy it. Would, it would be a destructive force for generations. It would really be horrible at every level.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jeff, um I got 3 minutes before we're going to go here. Uh, any closing remarks? Um, you know, do you have a website or anything you'd like uh, you know, to let listeners know how to find you or
0: Sure, I, I'd love to have them go to my website. It's myname.com. It's jeffschweitzer.com. It's unfortunately a long name. It's J E F F S C H W E I T Z E R.com. It's jeffschweitzer.com. And um, my passion is my book, which um, I'd love to plug here, which is Beyond Cosmic Dice, which you mentioned at the beginning of the broadcast. Um, I, I wish every human would read this book. Um, I I, would, I really think we would be better off if everyone read it. They don't have to agree with it. Um, they might not agree with what I say, but I think it would be interesting to have the conversation. Anyway, it's called Beyond Cosmic Dice, more life in a random world than it is available on Kindle. Uh, many times for free, by the way. There are a lot of specials where you can download it for free or... Um, the hardback, if you want the hardback, but they're available on can Amazon.com.
1: Can you describe it in a couple sentences, aside from the title?
0: Yes, it's um, how humans can live ethically and morally in the absence of religion. How we as a society can advance ourselves. It's not an anti-religion. It's not anti-religion. It's if in the absence of religion, or for those people who are not religious, how is it that we can be and should be moral?
1: No, I I totally agree. I mean, we can certainly be moral without religion, um, especially the uh, organized religion. I don't think the organized religion is very moral. Um, Well, Jeff, you know, maybe we should uh, book a day to have you come on and uh, talk about that, Um, or, you know, if yeah well you know what we'll we'll email after the show, and uh we'll figure that all out and uh you know I'd love to have you back to talk about politics if you if you put another great article like this one uh we were talking about tonight, who will investigate the investigators so let's uh let's stay in touch i'd you know be happy to you know continue to share uh what you're writing about and thinking about with my listeners.
0: Well, thank you for having me on your show i'm I'm really grateful thank you very much.
1: Okay, well, it's been fun. Thank you so much for your time tonight, and uh, I'm sure you'll be back again.
0: Thank you. Talk to you later. Bye.
1: Okay, bye-bye. Well, listeners, I hope you enjoyed that uh, as much as I did, and uh, we are quickly running out of time. Uh, So I will close with this. Uh, Remember out there, you who are the cognitive minority, the words of Gandhi, first they ignore you. First they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. Or author Schopenhauer, the philosopher who said, all truth passes through three stages. First, it's ridiculed. Second, it's violently opposed. And third, it's accepted for being self evident i think we're living in the evolution right now and this is what it looks like so you just keep doing what you're doing to be the change and walk your talk ushering good vibrations have an elevated consciousness so we bring in that long-awaited paradigm shift thank you listeners Um, i appreciate you and uh, keep tuning in and i'll be back uh, next wednesday i hope you will too good night and have a great weekend bye-bye